You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming, video, and the audio podcast. You are Aaron Maté, a journalist. You've written for such places as The Nation. Um, apparently, you won an award last year, right? The I.F. Stone Award for Independent something? Correct. The I.F. Stone Award for uh, Outstanding Achievement in Independent Media. I was honored for my coverage of Russiagate, which we've talked about before. Which we have talked if you, about. If you recall, um, that, was, that, that was once a major issue in the U.S. where people I, actually... Oh, really? It's, it's been yeah. so long ago. I get it mixed up with Watergate. <laughs> which one was Nixon? Um, so uh, we're going to talk about something uh, very controversial today. Uh, chemical weapons, and specifically the question of whether the world's chemical weapons watchdog, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, has or has not been basically suppressing evidence about whether or not a uh, chemical weapons attack in Syria took place. It's a particularly notable attack uh, because it's one of the two uh, reported chemical weapons attacks for which the Trump administration retaliated militarily, I think. This is the Duma attack or reported attack in um, April of 2018. Um, now, uh, I think you are pretty convinced, we'll talk about this toward the end of the podcast, uh, that the, the attack actually didn't happen. Uh, what uh, I'm more agnostic on that. There's no doubt that questions have now been raised about uh, whether whether it happened. Uh, we'll talk about that and even maybe get in the weeds about that a little. But um, I think one thing you and I agree on is that there is now enough evidence that the OPCW uh, has not been dealing straightforwardly with us on this subject um, that this should be a story in major media that if, if the major, if the New York times, Washington post, wall street journal were really doing their job, there would at least be a story about this Le leaving aside the question, both of whether the attack did or didn't happen, even leaving aside the question of whether the OPCW has in fact been corrupted, uh, uh, allegedly under pressure from the Trump administration, Leave, leaving aside the question of whether that's even true, there's enough evidence that there's, there is a story here in conventional terms. We agree on that, right? A hundred percent. And it doesn't matter uh, that I think now that the attack was staged, which I do. But of course, you know, I'm not an expert. I wasn't there. So if you were to ask me to make the case for why it was staged based on the actual evidence and having a knowledge of physics and engineering, I couldn't do it because uh, I'm not an expert. The point is, that those who actually have the expertise and actually worked for the OPCW, that they have been silenced and their findings were excluded from what the OPCW put out publicly. And other revelations have come up, including that they're alleging that this was done under U.S. pressure. So right. the point is not for me to argue that this, that this attack in Duma was staged. The point is for me to highlight that people inside the OPCW uh, are basically uh, have produced evidence that was ignored and distorted, which points to there being outright fraud at the world's uh, highest authority on chemical weapons under U.S. pressure. And given that the report that the OPCW put out retroactively justified the rationale for the U.S. to, to launch airstrikes on Syria, which it did 
um, shortly after the uh, Duma incident, then having a fair hearing of these whistleblowers, these experts, is of utmost importance. And, you know, one reason I think this is such a big deal is the OPCW is an important thing. I mean, um, you know, I was – when the Chemical Weapons Convention was ratified in 1997, I had been, you know, kind of crusading on its behalf. I was writing pieces in support of it. I mean, that's what brought the OPCW into into being. Uh, I mean, I was I was so involved in this. I wrote about it for Slate and so on that there was an there was an actual party held by the Henry Stimson Center in Washington, an arms control group, celebrating the passage. And I was like invited. I went. Okay, so I have a long-standing interest in this, and I think. One reason the OPCW is so important is because the Chemical Weapons Convention actually, uh, it, it has more teeth in principle than all prior uh, weapons of mass destruction, arms control uh, uh, agreements, at least global ones. So it's an important thing, and I'd hate to see uh, the integrity of this global watchdog uh, corrupted, and it bothers me a little that mainstream journalists seem not even interested in the question. So... um let me just do a little stage setting and then we'll jump in and try to tell the story in a way that people who haven't been following this at all can, you know, can follow. Um, Let me just say quickly, before you talk about Duma, just on the issue of the OPCW and its credibility, Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And you know who else agrees is the OPCW's first director general, right? It's founding director general, Jose Bustani, who should be known to us audiences because he was forced out of his position. Uh, after John Bolton threatened him literally uh, with physical harm because Bustani was getting in the way of the Bush administration's plans to invade Iraq because he was negotiating for inspections that the Bush administration, uh, especially Bolton, figured would interrupt their war plans. So Bolton uh, and the Bush administration engineered Bustani's ouster. But Bustani was the OPCW's first director general, a very uh, uh, highly respected Brazilian diplomat, who's held a number of important positions um, in global diplomacy. And he was among a panel that heard testimony from one of the whistleblowers for, uh, around Duma and who came away feeling very alarmed. And he's among those who was calling for an open investigation and for these whistleblowers to be heard. Right. And another person who was, I think, in on that uh, panel and heard uh, that uh, whistleblower and the OPCW is now saying whistleblowers not the right term. We'll get into the yeah. the OPCW pushback and so on. But yeah. um, the uh, Jonathan Steele, the journalist, was on your your uh, podcast, uh, also called Pushback, uh, right? The the um, and you're one of I, you know we should say you're one of the very few journalists who's been uh, paying attention to this story. A few others, but but none in the big kind of mainstream media. You've had you've done several podcasts on this, and people can check it out on on pushback. So right, the the original. So so if if it's true that that the Trump administration pressured the OPCW into distorting these findings, uh, this would not be the apparently the first time that American pressure has exerted a corrupting influence on the OPCW. So just quickly. There were reports of a chemical weapons attack on Duma, uh, a, a town near Damascus in Syria in April of 2018. Uh, a, a team of OPCW inspectors was dispatched. The Trump administration chose not to wait for them to get there and actually get permission to inspect and inspect. It went ahead and retaliated. So you can imagine how embarrassing it would be for the Trump administration if it turned out that what the inspectors found was reason to doubt that a, that a chemical weapons attack had taken place. 
the OPCW eventually issued a report more than a year later, I think, um, around a year later probably, that said uh, it was likely that a chemical weapons attack had taken place. Uh, however, subsequently, documents began being, you know, emerging through leaks uh, from the OPCW, emails and so on, indicating that uh, that was far from a unanimous feeling among people at the OPCW who were in position to know, in particular, uh, people who had been sent to Syria on the, the inspection team that actually, you know, inspected things at Duma. There were there were clearly the, the initial report they uh, signed off on, which was internal, had, had, had listed various reasons for skepticism. Um, and, uh, and and then and so a number of documents have emerged and we'll get into all of this. Uh, again, my minimal claim is this should be a story. There's just no doubt. There's documentary evidence. You wouldn't even have to interview anybody. You could write it from the documents. But the thing about the exactly Times right. and the Washington Post is they have the resources to get people to go get people to, to you know, uh, say things anonymously and so on and really flesh out the story, you know, get get off the record sources and so on. So is there anything you want to add to the uh, scene setting before we kind of try to grow, go chronologically into how things happened within uh, OPCW? Just a couple of things. When this alleged chemical weapons attack occurs, the Syrian government is very close to recapturing all of Duma, which had been under the control of the extremist militia funded by Saudi Arabia, known as Jaish al-Islam. So at that point, the Syrian government is, is close to winning uh, and defeating this group that has been shelling Damascus for a long time. At that point, uh, the only... Uh, it has no motive whatsoever to use chemical weapons, even if it has chemical weapons in its possession. And of course, we recall that under a deal brokered after a previous allegation of chemical weapons uh, by Russia, that Syria destroyed uh, its stockpile of chemical weapons. The allegation now, of course, that it would have to have uh, avoided the OPCW and kept some of its stockpile, which is possible. You know, I, well, I also, we should note that oddly, perhaps, Chlorine is not banned under the Chemical Weapons Convention, which mm. is also a reason that if you wanted to actually uh, fake an attack or stage an attack, it's not that hard to get a hold of chlorine cylinders. I mean, mm. chlorine is used in swimming pools and so on. Um, so it's right. it's it's not. I don't know if they disposed of chlorine as part of that thing, but it's not. Uh, uh, it's it's not a it's not a hard thing to get a hold of. Fair enough. So. The Now, meanwhile, the U.S. has set a, re, a red line under Obama that was reiterated under, under Trump because a year earlier, Trump had actually bombed Syria uh, the, the, in April 2017 based on an allegation of the chemical weapons in Khan Sheikhoun, for which there has also uh, been a flawed U.N. report that I won't go into, but people like Ted Postal of MIT have criticized it. So for the Assad government, the only way it could guarantee uh, U.S. military strikes is by launching a chemical weapons attack. And it does so allegedly as it's about to uh, recapture Duma anywhere, anyway, where only a few small pockets of, of militants were left. So strategically, from the point of view of the Syrian government, it makes no sense to do the one thing that would trigger a guaranteed U.S. response, just as it had the year before. Um, it does make sense, though, for the militants on the ground who are fighting to retain control 
of the town that they're, that they're occupying to fake an attack. I mean, I, I think it's a very plausible motive. And there are, you know, the evidence to me uh, that has since emerged points to that, that that is exactly what has happened, um, which we can get to later. But and then, and then also just in terms of the timeline of the reports, the UN issues two reports. They issue, Their first report comes is released in early July 2018. And it is sort of, it, it's very vague. It's inconclusive. It doesn't point to in any one direction. And the reason why it's so vague becomes clear when we later learn later right. on from the leaks that there was a huge internal dispute over what the uh, superiors at the, at the OPCW wanted to release by basically omitting all the findings that the people on the ground in Duma uh, had found and had put in their version of the report. So the interim report that gets put out in July 2018 is basically just sort of a compromise amongst everybody, but it's very watered down and vague. Later on, there's a final report put out in March 2019, so nearly one year after the alleged attack. And at that point, uh, it concludes that there were reasonable grounds that uh, a toxic uh, chemical attack took place and that chlorine was the toxin and that it was very likely that the cylinders that contained the, uh, the, the poison gas were delivered uh, by aircraft from the sky, which they, and they don't say it, but the only inference to draw from that is that they're saying that this was dropped by the Syrian military or Russia, because those are the only parties uh, with aircraft um, in, in that, uh, in that zone. So uh, that was the conclusion and it lent retroactive ju- justification or, or credibility to the Trump administration's rationale for bombing Syria so quickly after the alleged incident. Right. It would have been a big and very unflattering story for the Trump administration if the final report had said, you know, there's a lot of reason to doubt that a chemical weapons attack took place. Now, um, so you mentioned there were two public reports uh, from the OPCW, an interim report that was vague, kind of noncommittal, a final report that, that sounded more conclusive in favor of the hypothesis that there had been a chemical weapons attack. Now, what we now know through the leakage of documents is that the only, the only reason the, you know, the interim report that was vague originally, they were about to release an interim report that was um that was much more confident in its assertion that a chemical weapons uh, attack had taken place but they hadn't uh, run it by the team that actually did the inspecting in Duma and at the last minute one member of the Duma team got a hold of that draft interim OPCW report and said wait a second you guys are about to say all this stuff that is not backed up by the actual inspection. And let me um, let me quote from that email. So this is a guy. There's basically two people uh, who are known as whistleblowers. Uh, one, we know his name. We'll get to him. It's Ian Henderson. Uh, this guy, we don't know his name. He's come to be known as Alex. He's the one who spoke before the panel that you referred to. Uh, here's an email that uh, was leaked that he sent to a, a high-ranking official at the OPCW when he sees this uh, draft interim report that they're that they're planning to release. He says, after reading this modified report, which incidentally no other team member who deployed into Duma has had the opportunity to do, I was struck by how much it misrepresents the facts. Many of the facts and observations outlined in the in in the full version, that is to say the report they had submitted that has exactly. been redacted. Okay, so um, many of the facts and observations outlined in the full version 
uh, uh, I'm sorry, wait a second, uh, blah, blah, blah. I was struck by how much it misrepresents the facts. Many of the facts and observations outlined in the full version are inextricably interconnected, and by selectively omitting certain ones, an unintended bias has been introduced into the report, undermining its credibility. In other cases, some crucial facts that have remained in the redacted version have morphed into something quite different to what was originally drafted. Uh, and then um, he goes on and uh, notes that, uh, well, let, he, let's get into what, what the original report had, had found that was redacted in such a way that none of the notes of skepticism persisted in, in, in the draft report that, that the OPCW was planning to release. Some of the things, well, go ahead. Well, so yeah, so this, this uh, email you're quoting from is written on June 22nd, 2018. So a couple of weeks before the interim report gets released. And it's important to stress here that it, it's not just that the superiors who were, none of them were in Duma, not just that they've written a, a flawed report, but it's that there was an original report written by the people. Which we have actually, now, which, which, which have has now, been leaked. Who were actually on the ground in Duma. And they're saying that all of their critical findings are being excluded. So, you know, I can read some of them. So, for example, you know, there, there's two main areas I think here worth focusing on. There's chemical, there's toxicology, the um, traces of chemicals found uh, at the scene, and also in victims who who were uh, were samples are taken from them uh, in Turkey uh, because pe- people some people went to Turkey after after the Syrian government. Uh, retook Duma because they didn't want to live under the Syrian government. Right. Um, and, uh, they, um, th- and they also observed, uh, videos, uh, and photographs taken of, of, of the bodies that were shown to, that were said to be the victims of this chemical weapons attack. So for example, one finding that was in the original, uh, interim report, but that was excluded says this, some of the signs and symptoms described by witnesses and noted in photos and video recordings taken by witnesses of the alleged victims are not consistent with exposure to chlorine containing choking or blood agents such as chlorine gas uh, and other uh, gases that I'm not even going to try pronouncing. <laughs> uh, specifically, that's me, not the original inspector. Right. Uh, specifically, the rapid onset of heavy buckle and nasal, nasal frothing in many victims, as well as the color that, of that's the That's B-U-C-C-H-A-L or something. It's, it's not, not a belt buckle. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah is not indicative of intoxication from such chemicals. The large number of decedents in the one location, most of whom were seen in videos and photos strewn on the floor of the apartments away from open windows and within a few meters of an escape to unpoisoned or less toxic air, is at odds with intoxication by chlorine-based choking or blood agents, even at high concentrations. Uh, and then it goes on to say... Um, when the, ana- when the analytical results of the first round of environmental and biological samples were received and no nerve agents or their degradation products were identified in either environmental or biological samples, um, the plans for, for exhumations were halted at the risk, as the risk of not finding substantive evidence of the alleged attack was now considered high and proceeding with the exhumations presented a risk to benefit ration that was no longer acceptable. So they're just, they're, 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 they're talking about why they didn't decide to ask for the uh, exhumation of the body. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, and as the other emails note that the, you know, the levels of, uh, of chemicals found at the scene 
uh, were no different than chlorine chemicals that could be found in any natural environment. So basically, there wasn't a a, a, a higher uh, uh, presence of chlorine than what is in normal in, in any normal environment. And that crucial finding was among many that was omitted from what we got in both the interim and final report. Right. And and that issue of chlorine is is an example where, you know, the, the whistleblower known as Alex, who wrote the email I quoted from, kind of has to school the guy he's writing the email to, because apparently the people, uh, you know, it, it sounds like the people who wrote the redacted report that they were about to release, had he not intervened, kind of didn't totally understand chemistry. I mean, he has to explain some things to them. And 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 the upshot is, I mean, remember that, you know, the, the upshot is, yes, we found evidence of contact with chlorine containing substances. But remember, household cleaning products contain chlorine. This by itself means basically nothing. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and so he's explaining all this and he gets very uh, technical we should say, by the way, that uh, this guy, Alex, you know, the OPCW just recently released a report, an investigation of the leaks, basically, in which they do, they pretty clearly seem to be trying to undermine the credibility of two whistleblowers. And they say about this Alex guy, well, he wasn't even in Duma. He was, he didn't get further than Damascus because he didn't have the training required to go to Duma. I think for all we know, that means he wasn't trained to, uh, you know, actually do the samples. He's, he's clearly, to physically collect the samples, he clearly is a, a chemist who seems to know his stuff, was sent there for a reason. And in fact, I thought Jonathan Steele said on your podcast that he was in he- the head of some uh, a chemical assessment or something. That's so right. there, there, whether there's a contradiction between Jonathan's characterization and the OPCWs or whether they're compatible, if you look carefully, I don't know, but I'll just note that. Anyway, sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Um, the other thing Steele said, this is not in the documentary evidence that has emerged, uh, but Steele said that Alex says that subsequent analyses of, uh, of, the, of kind of the area, the, the overall area, the neighborhood kind of, found that chlorine levels were no higher and, if anything, lower in the, where the alleged attack was, then in the general vicinity. And, exactly. and, and that, and, and that would tend to corroborate the, the idea that there hadn't been an attack, but. And this is why, uh, Alex points out in one of, one of the emails to OPCW management protesting their changes. He says, quote, purposely singling out chlorine gas as one of the possibilities is disingenuous because they're omitting the context of the fact that the actual levels of chlorine Right. Are no different than they would be in a uh, natural environment. We should say that they did test for all chemicals that are banned by uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention. None were found. A couple were found in the in exactly the, at the levels you'd expect, given given that they're used in textiles. Yeah. Uh, but there, there's no reason to think it could have been anything other than chlorine. And in any event, it's chlorine cylinders uh, yeah. that were found near these two sites, two apartment buildings, in one of which uh, there apparently were a number of uh, deaths. That's we, There are videos that seem to be the interior of that building, although actually I think inspectors were – I'm not sure they were able to go into the ground floor of that building. But in any event, there, there are two locations. The one that's referred to in the report as location two is the one where uh, a lot of uh, – 
bodies seem to have been found. And um, at both of these locations, apartment buildings, there is a, a chlorine cylinder. Uh, That's right. At, in location two, there is a chlorine cylinder that is, has penetrated a, uh, uh, the roof. And the idea there is that, is that the cylinder then released uh, chlorine gas down into the building and it, and right. it, uh, it killed everybody, um, including people who were in the stairwell. And at the second location, you know, and this is where the ballistics get involved because there's a toxicology, the, the chemical traces, and then there's ballistics, you know, basic right. engineering and physics. The, the second location, that's where we're supposed to believe that the cylinder penetrated the roof and then bounced onto a bed. And the suppressed engineering study, the one that basically start, the one that basically kicked all of this off, it was the leaking of Ian Henderson's report, this ballistics okay. report, this engineering study, and who was in Duma. And he points out just how improbable in both locations, location two, where the cylinder's in the roof, uh, and location four, where the cylinder has gone through a roof and bounced uh, onto a bed, how how improbable it is that those were dropped by aircraft. And he says it's much more likely that they were manually placed, yeah. which, and he doesn't say this, but the obvious inference there is that the attack is staged. Yeah. Uh, let me just quickly interject a couple of things. One is that, you know, there is this video that, uh, is completely horrifying that is uh i don't know if it's been confirmed that it's from the inside of this building location two where the cylinder uh was found on the roof uh but um anyway it's uh it, it is that video is one of the reasons i'm i'm not ready to dismiss uh the idea that a chemical we- a weapons tech took place but we'll get to that later um in the conversation the other thing i want to say about you're right. The, the, um, I mean, in the initial report that the team prepared, there were notes of skepticism about whether these cylinders are compatible. They're having been dropped from the air is like compatible with other things we see at the site. And in, in particular, uh, well, th- there are notes of skepticism there. And then ultimately there is this second engineering report that is done under the uh, coordination of, of this Ian Henderson guy. And we'll get into you know, the details of the report. That's done, that's done after the, this, exactly. these, these initial notes of skepticism you're talking about. Yeah, yeah after the first uh, kind of report from the team, after the interim report, he submits uh, this, this report. Uh, and, and, and it's an example of the kind of skepticism you get in, in terms of ballistics is – Basically, so there was this cylinder found on the roof of the apartment uh, location two. It it didn't fully penetrate the apartment and fall in. It it it, it seems to have created a big hole, and then this, the the kind of nozzle happened to land in a way that was pointing into the apartment. And the theory is that, and in fact, I think the nozzle broke off. It's a broken nozzle, I think, which could account for very rapid distribution of a gas in theory but anyway that's what you find and in the ballistics report uh, an example you get uh, of the kind of skepticism there is is like the relatively minimal damage done to the cylinder seems incompatible with the magnitude of the hole in the roof uh, exactly right yeah. uh, which which to them i think i don't know if they explicitly say this but I, I i think maybe they do that the hole in the roof seems more compatible with an explosive device 
the, the the suggestion being maybe not explicit that there was already a like a hole from a mortar or something and somebody placed the cylinder there that at least is is one theory but um so so there, uh, go ahead well that that's exactly right that the, they're looking at the damage to the roof and to the cylinders and they conclude that it's just not compatible but they say the what it is uh, compatible to uh is the is the use of a mortar, uh, either from a, from a mortar shell or, or from a rocket, but, uh, testing it for, uh, being as a, being the result of, for, from a cylinder doesn't make sense. One reason is that the hole was almost double the size of the diameter of the cylinder. Um, and speaking to MIT professor Ted Postal, professor emeritus, he says that that's just not compatible, that, that if you, if you have, if you have that situation, it's much more likely that that it's a mortar and that's why the the suppressed engineering report concludes i'll just quote it it says all the elements listed above point to the conclusion that the alleged impact event or events leading to the observed vessel deformation and concrete damage were not compatible right so um and then there's other things and they really you know it's a complicated question i i mean and, and i would say one thing to keep in mind uh when when we talk about cylinders having been manually placed or moved, I mean, in one clay, uh, case, in the case of the apartment building where there were either few or no deaths, do you remember, was anybody alleged to have been killed in the the other location, aside from location two? But anyway, it's, uh, it's yeah. the one where the cylinder is found on the bed a long way from the hole in the roof. And they're like, uh, why would anybody move this? One one thing I think you have to keep in mind, again, we'll, we'll later we'll get into the question of did, did a chemical weapons attack or not, but there was a period when this location would have been under con- the control of the rebels and then a period when it was under control of the Syrians and the Russians, right? Before mm-hmm. the inspectors got there, we should add, all the bodies had been removed. The, the inspectors didn't see any bodies. They, 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 uh, they had been buried by the time they got there because it took a while for them to get there. When they when they first arrived in Syria, I think there was still conflict going on there. Um, but I do think you have to keep in mind that in principle, if anything has been moved, it could have been moved by the rebels. It could have been moved by the Syrian government because they were the ones immediate, uh, in control of that area immediately. So, for example, if they wanted to make it look like it must have been staged by moving the cylinder all the way over to bed, they could have. Who knows? Okay, but there's one problem with that though, because I believe that the um, so the the leaked engineering report, Henderson's report, I believe it, it mentions that as a possibility. It allows that that's possible. That basically, that the cylinder after it fell in, it was moved onto a bed, uh, and um, that, that and and the, it's true that that could be done on purpose to make it look mm-hmm. uh, as if someone's trying to stage it. But the problem is th- they still don't find corresponding damage to the floors. Or the walls that can make it look as if a, as if a cylinder has uh, has caused that right. damage. So they're saying it seems to have not dropped through the roof at all. And so, yes, and certainly they're not seeing anything uh, damage on the walls or the windows that could uh, you know lead right. to that. Whereby the the like the laws of mechanics show that you have to have a create an opposing force right. to send it from you know from the side onto the bed. Uh, which is the only way for it to land there, and they just don't find any, any yeah, evidence. Yeah, I mean, of course, it could still be the Syrian government just brought it in from the outside, put it on the bed, because for the reasons you just stated, it's going to seem crazy. You, you know, the, the the claim that it dropped through the roof would then be discredited, right? Who knows? I mean, I I, I just I'm just I'm just trying it's to possible. Sure, you know, no, sure. It, listen, listen, exactly. And of course, you know, I, there, 
I'm not going to, it doesn't look the fact that I think it was staged doesn't matter. You know, like what, what matters is that the people who have investigated it have not had their findings aired out. So of course, you know, I, I wasn't there, so I can't prove conclusively that and, it was staged. Yeah. You know. Now the point is this should be getting attention. That's my minimal yeah. point. And there's just no yeah. doubt, unless you just think like, the OPC doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we have effective international control of chemical weapons. Who cares whether the agency in charge of doing the inspections has integrity? Unless you believe all that, this should, story should be in the New York Times right now. And I think I think it should be a front page scandal because not only do you have allegations of fraud uh, by these inspectors who were in Duma against their superiors, but they're saying that this was done under U.S. pressure, and you can tell that they do not want to talk about this. So Ian Henderson. In his, he recently spoke to the UN Security Council. And by the way, he has only spoken in an official channel like this. He denies being the source of the leak of his engineering report. And it makes sense because the people who received it, uh, which is a group of British academics called the Working Group on uh, uh, Syria pr- uh, Propaganda and Media, um, the Working Group for, for short, they're the ones who received this leaked document. And they got, they got a note from a third party who was not either one of these whistleblowers saying that he, he, that, that, uh, that he was a former senior official with the OPCW and that he wanted to speak out as well, but he didn't out of fear for his safety. And, uh, and so that is, that is who initially passed on this leaked engineering assessment, not Ian Henderson. So Hmm. Ian Henderson only speaking through official channels. uh, And he spoke recently to the UN and gave, uh, gave a video statement. And he also submitted a long uh, written account that we published at the gray zone, the gray zone.com. Uh, and he uh, point, he mentions that right before the, the day before the interim report was published back in July, 2018. And this is after there's been, there's been now been a series of internal protests over the fact that all this critical evidence is being ex- excluded. So the day before the interim report comes out, you have a delegation of three unnamed U S officials coming to the OPCW meeting with all the inspectors, not just the two whistleblowers, but the entire team and telling them that, no, what happened was the Syrian government committed a chemical weapons attack with chlorine, and that should be your finding, which is, you know, a brazen act of pressure on the OPCW, which is, I think, possibly in violation of its own conventions, because, you know, state parties are not allowed to influence the course of investigations. But the U.S. does this, and Ian, Ian Henderson doesn't provide details but he does confirm that that meeting took place. And it was first reported by Alex, the other whistleblower, to Jonathan Steele. And Alex told Jonathan Steele that this was seen as, uh, as that, that the inspectors weren't comfortable with this, that this was seen as outside pressure. But it's clear that the, that we, we haven't gotten many more details than that. And I sense that that's because these guys are uncomfortable with going public with such a brazen act of pressure by the Trump administration. And and that's why this is just all the more of a scandal because, you know, we're supposed to champion whistleblowers right now. I mean, that's all we've been hearing about for the last five months with this impeachment thing. We're supposed to champion whistleblowers. This happened under the Trump administration. This is the Trump administration pressuring the world's top chemical weapons watchdog to reach a conclusion that happened to retroactively justify U.S. military action, which is the most serious thing that a president can do, which is, you know, launch military strikes on another country. And yet not only is it not on the front page, but it's not even being covered. And the only, the only way it's being covered actually is in the OPCW's attacks on the whistleblowers trying to dismiss them as rogue actors. 
And so not only is this a scandal, but I think the media silence is a scandal in itself, too. Okay. Now, Aaron, can I ask you to um, take your left arm and move it on the other side of your, the cord for your microphone? Because when you uh, move your left hand out, it pushes your, it makes your microphone bump against your chin and it creates a noise. Yeah. Now you're fine. Oh, no, as okay. long as the cord is in between your two arms, you can be as expansive as you want. Got it. Okay. Now we'll probably cut this out. Although I have to say, you know, this issue is so fraught. Whenever you talk about chemical weapons and the possibility that an attack didn't happen, I'm almost reluctant to cut anything out of this video because people will say, oh, what did you cut? You, you know what I mean? It's like, it's almost that weird. Uh, and the reason I bring that up is because I understand why reporters don't want to get into this. Because, you know, you will be, I mean, I don't know what your theory is, but but you you are in danger of being called a conspiracy theorist, an Assad apologist, whatever, Um Although I've got to say, if the New York Times just does a straight story on the controversy, I don't think they'd they'd have to worry about that. But, you know, it is a super controversial thing. I would be shocked, um, as careful and clear as I've tried to be about what I actually believe here and what the grounds are for believing it, I'd be shocked if there's no no commenter calls either of us a conspiracy theorist or an Assad sympathizer. I mean, that is the risk you run if you get into this stuff. And I don't think I've ever before gotten into this stuff about whether, you know, a chemical attack did or didn't happen. But the documentary evidence here is just too strong that there is at least a legitimate story. Yeah. And listen, you know, I've gotten past caring about whether or not people call me names. I know you I, have. I, I can I, tell. Know, <laughs> but, it's, but, you know, and, you know I, I wouldn't step into this if the story just wasn't so on its face. Gaming, you have actual experts at the OPCW uh, claiming that their findings were excluded and showing proof, showing the document, showing the paper trail. It's such an obvious scandal, or at least it's such an obvious thing worth looking into, you know? Um, and I, I think part of the reluctance stems from an overall climate of intimidation uh, and scare attacks that have been used to silence critics of the Syria proxy war. There's been a huge propaganda campaign uh undertaken to basically uh, manufacture support for what the U.S. and its allies have done in Syria since the first protest against Assad erupted in 2011. And, you know, but to me, it's just so obvious now. And there's been enough, uh, enough reporting, even from places like the New York Times, that show the reality that this was a, a brutal proxy war that has empowered uh, jihadists that have committed horrible atrocities, and that it was the outside intervention from the U.S., Turkey, and the Gulf allies that kept this war going for so long. And, and it's led to a situation where all sides have committed horrible crimes. But the problem is we're supposed to believe this simplistic narrative where Russia and Syria are crushing a bunch of uh, freedom-loving uh, rebels who just want to be anarchists and bring peace and freedom to Syria, ignoring that actually the, the, it's the worst elements. It's ISIS and al-Qaeda that have been empowered by this proxy war. And, you know, to silence that perspective, people get called Assadists. But I just, to me, the, the facts on the ground are so undeniable now that it, it just doesn't bother me anymore. And I think it's led to people being intimidated and to not, you know, it's not as if they have strong feelings either way, but they just don't want to deal with the onslaught of abuse that comes with being factual. And, you know, I take inspiration from people like my, my colleagues at the Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton, and Rania Kalik and others who, you know, who have just, um, who have ignored all that stuff and have, have tried to, 
stick to the facts and stick to basic principles of of objectivity and fairness. And, you know, we, we don't have to get into the whole Syria thing, but to me, it, like in this case, no matter how you feel about Syria, when you have scientists on the inside alleging fraud and showing evidence that has been suppressed, I mean, how can you ignore that? Yeah, I want to talk about one more kind of category of evidence and then get into the fact that uh, get into what, what the OPCW has said to try to discredit uh, these two whistleblowers a little bit. But but the other um, there's one other piece of evidence having to do with the um, the hospital, you know, where uh, chemical weapons victims would have gone. Now, uh, I, I think there's some actual footage uh, at, at one hospital of um, people being uh, hosed off for chemical weapons, uh, I believe, on this day. Now, what the initial report says, and this was not included in the redacted report because it was another note of skepticism, was that they went and interviewed more than 10 uh, witnesses, uh, either at this emergency room or other places, you know, doctors and nurses and so on. Um, and here's the story they found is is that, um, first of all, apparently no doctor said to them they had seen a single person who seemed to have suffered from a chemical weapons attack. What happened what, at the one main, I guess, main emergency room, uh, according to, to uh, some of these witnesses was, you know, there were, there, look, there was a huge attack, uh, uh, no doubt, a lot of bombing on these days. A yeah. lot of people had come to the emergency room, some of them with respiratory problems, because if you're in a building that gets bombed, there's all kinds of stuff that, that's released. Mm-hmm. So they were there. Some of them were coughing. Um, and then, and there were volunteers there who were helping process the, the, the incoming people. At some point, some guy runs in and says, chemical, chemical, chemical. This is according to the report uh, from the Duma inspection team. A guy runs in and says, chemical, chemical, chemical. And the, and, and the volunteers start like hosing them off and stuff. I, if I'm, it didn't, you know, I, again, people, all these documents are available. We'll link to them. If I've gotten anything wrong, let me know. Um, but my sense is that that is the source of the video and then it, it turned out there was no evidence that these people had been subjected to a chemical weapons attack. And apparently there are even doctors uh, at this hospital who didn't even hear a rumor that there had been a chemical weapons attack until videos appeared online yeah. that seemed to be evidence of a chemical weapons attack. So yeah, one, of the, yeah. what, one of those doctors, by the way, spoke to the British journalist Robert Fisk, who was one of the first, uh, if not the first Western correspondent to get into Duma. And, uh, that doctor told him that there was, that there was no, um, chemical incident at all. They, he had treated people who were dealing with, uh, exposure to dust. And the, and the Duma team, they interviewed, I think everybody they could find, uh, you know, related to the medical facilities and they, um, they came up with nothing. You know, I want to, I think you alluded earlier to the fact that there are actually two fact finding teams. Yes. One went to Duma. (laughs) <laughs> the other went to Turkey. Why yes. Turkey? Well, Turkey is where the rebels had gone yeah. after they evacuated Duma. Mm-hmm. So you've got um, two different teams. And one thing, and obviously the people in Turkey are going to be talking to people who, um, and this isn't to say that a chemical weapons attack didn't happen, but they are going to be talking to people who are going to be inclined to uh, push the narrative that it did. Uh, in other words, if it is a false narrative, the, the, the fact finders in Turkey are talking to the people who are pushing the narrative. 
So you've got two different OPCW teams. And what apparently happened, uh, and this is also, I think, grounds for suspicion uh, about what's going on inside the OPCW, is that as they moved toward the final report, which did say it was likely there had been an attack, they defined something called the core team, Mm -hmm. from which they excluded everyone on the Duma team. There's like about 10 people, except for one person who was a paramedic. So in other words, they they, they included no chemical experts from the Duma team, no no ballistics experts. They, they, They retained one guy who's a paramedic or possibly a woman. And the rest of the people, so far as I can tell, either didn't go to either place or were in Turkey talking to the rebels. And and I'm sure that the rebels, I'm sure whatever happened that day, there were genuine witnesses of it uh, in Turkey, whether it was a chemical weapons attack or not. Um, So they interviewed people there that that, uh, qualified as witnesses. But I want to emphasize that so far as I can tell, the, the composition of the overall team in charge of the report changed in the course of this period such that it finally wound up being almost uh, consisting of almost nobody had gone to Duma and and a bunch of people who had talked to rebels in Turkey, right? This is critical. This is critical, Bob, we are pointing out. Because basically this so-called core team emerges after a very clear date. It, it emerges after the publication of the interim report. Because what had happened uh, prior to that point, the people who were actually in Duma had written a report that contained inconvenient findings or, you know, uh, taking away my editorial spin uh, had contained findings that undermined the narrative for a chemical weapons attack by the Assad government. And uh, the interim report that gets released results from a power struggle between those who were on the ground in Duma and the superiors, including some of them who, who are in Turkey. And what you get is this watered down uh, report where, you know, we're basically the people who are in Duma, they accept it because it's not, I mean, it's, it's disingenuous, but it's not blatantly factually incorrect. So, so they have to go with it, knowing that there's about to be a process for a final report where then they hope that they can get their findings out. But what happens then is that basically all of them get, get removed from the process uh, uh, and uh, they get replaced now by a core team, which includes, as you say, only one person from the original mission that went to Duma. And that's why, you know, now just, just recently you have the OPCW claiming that these two dissenting expect, inspectors were not even, well, that the Ian Henderson was not a part of the original team and they used some semantics to try to make that point. And then they also say that the other inspector, Alex, that he played, that they try to portray him as playing a minor role, which is contradicted by all the available evidence, including the fact that he drafted the original interim report. Uh, and that he, like Ian Henderson, by the way, are veteran OPCW officials. They've been with the OPCW since its founding. Uh, and well, they both left- of them took some time off, but they've both been there for a number, uh, many, many years, and uh, it, both in two installments. Like exactly, they got rehired. They got rehired because the because because the OPCW was suffering from a lack of credible experts. So they get brought back on. Is that, uh, that's is that how- why, really? Yes, that's how trusted they were. So it's like now you have this situation where you're trying to portray these people as rogue actors who played limited minor roles and only, you know, are raising a stink because they couldn't accept that their findings were wrong. Well, meanwhile, they're, they're, these are people who have been with the OPCW for far longer than the superior, than their superiors who are now trashing them. 
and who have played veteran senior roles, including being team leaders, inspection team leaders, mm -hmm. which you can find in internal documents. So it, 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 it just, it, it makes no sense. And, and getting back to this issue of, of the so-called core team, it's them whose work uh, we are now supposed to uh, believe, uh, not the people who are actually on the ground in Duma. And, and that's why the final report um, it, uh, led to then when it gets published so much protest inside, because it wasn't unlike, it, you know, as opposed to the interim report, which was at least vague and, and so pretty much in, and inconclusive, the OPCW final report reaches conclusions about the cylinders and about the chemicals that are just totally contra blatantly contradicted by the findings of people in Duma. And that's why you have uh, more emails of protests that were, that were later leaked uh, when this came out. And by the way, you have a, pre while all this is happening, both Henderson and the other whistleblower and others as well are trying to register their protests internally. They're doing whatever they can. They're, they're trying to go through official channels to register their complaints. It's only after the, the final report, fr the fraudulent final report is published and, uh, and, and after Ian Henderson is fired or, or basically let out of the building. Uh, and, uh, and I think, I think marched out of the building. It sounds yeah, like, uh. yeah, yeah. Um, that, that now that these leaks start to emerge. And so obviously these are people who did not want to go public. Uh, but they felt, they felt that they had no, uh, had no other choice. And that's what a whistleblower is. And the silence reading their revelations is deafening. Yeah. I'm going to again ask you to move your left hand to the other side oh, of your. Sorry. Sorry, Bob. <laughs> right. So, um, so let's quickly say what the this Henderson report. So apparently, so far as I can tell, um, the way you know, there's a there's an interesting, um, you know, there's a moment where one of the emails, uh, you know, Henderson submits his engineering report. There's a there's an official like documents repository, mm -hmm. and he submits it there. And there's an email from the guy who's the chief of cabinet, which I believe is kind of the number two person at the mm -hmm. OPCW. Mm -hmm. And the email says, basically, get that thing out of the repository and get rid of any traces that it was ever submitted. Now, in, in, in fairness, I, I want to, I want to, uh, you know, tell the OPCW's side of the story. Here, here's what seems to have happened and in, uh, including some things they might emphasize. So, Henderson, I think, had at one point been told, you know, the initial report from the Duma team says, you know, there's some some questionable stuff about the these cylinders. The, if you're going to argue that they were dropped from the sky, there's some stuff that looks weird. We need a report done by experts, right? Mm -hmm. And apparently Henderson is tasked with coordinating that. He's not a ballistics expert per se, but uh, he is. Here, well, he is. he's he's a, he's mainly a chemistry guy. I a metal no, he's a metallurgy no, no, no. guy. Uh, he, he, he's, he's not mainly chemistry. His, he is, his main thing is ballistics. Is it? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. anyway, um, I mean, I didn't think he described that way in the, uh, UN testimony he recently gave, but anyway, the, um, uh, so, so he, but in any event, he enlists, well, he gets the sense that he's being excluded, that suddenly yeah. like they don't want his report. He goes to, uh, the, Head of cabinet, who at that point may be, a, I'm not sure it's the same one who, uh, who finally, he, he goes to somebody, some higher, high up official, I think the, uh, the chief of cabinet and, and, 
again, I'm not sure it's the same one who who demanded that his document, the report be removed. But um, he says he says that he got what he took to be tacit approval to continue with the report. He says mm-hmm. this this guy said, look, I don't see any reason they can't have two reports. In other words, you're being excluded from the one, maybe, but you can still do yours. In any event, uh, he persists and um, so, uh, lines up these experts who are, I gather, from universities or whatever, several experts who are going to contribute to this. He, he, he continues to consult with OPCW people on it. He gets the official sign-off of the director of the inspectorate, I think is the title, when it comes time to commission the reports. He says, these are the people I want doing the reports. Uh, and, and, and the director of the inspectorate signs off on it. Now, OPCW now says that that's null and void because they say that Henderson used, quote, subterfuge to get the in- director of the inspectorate to sign off to commission and effect the report. So yeah. that's what they're saying. I don't know what subterfuge means. Maybe Henderson exact, maybe he depicted what he, what was tacit approval or he had taken his tacit approval as explicit. Who knows? I just want to say they're doing what, you know, on the other hand, you read what they're saying, and they're clearly taking advantage of every opportunity to to try to discredit these two guys, right? It's not like I totally trust their account, but... There's a lot that they're omitting, including that during this period where Henderson is supposedly committing subterfuge, he is regularly uh, meeting with his colleagues. He's briefing them on his studies. He's meeting with higher-level officials, including, as you mentioned, Sebastian Braha, the chef of cabinet, so Braha says to him, I don't see why both studies can't be. So connected. it is Braha, the same. Now yeah. is Braha the same guy who later says, get the document out of the repository? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and Braha has recently come on. I believe Braha comes on in the late summer of 2018. He, he, he replaces uh, uh, someone who is from Turkey originally. No, no, actually mm-hmm. someone who's from Tunisia. So his, so he, so he's relatively new. Uh, and yeah, and Braha says, get this doc. And so after Henderson, so Henderson realizes that, um, so Henderson submit, he completes his report. He writes an executive summary. He gets, he submits it to his colleagues. Uh, he, he submits it to uh, a former OPCW in, inspector. He's undergoing peer review in the building. And meanwhile, he knows there's something going on on the first floor, which is where the, the big wigs are that they're working. They brought on another former OPCW official who Henderson has had some, he alludes to having some tensions with and differences with. Uh, and um, Henderson tries to uh, submit his report. Uh, but now the same people who had met, who had met with him before uh, tell him that they won't accept it. Um, and, uh, and then he submits it to this internal uh, archive registry. And that's when Braha says, get it out of here and remove all traces. And uh, shortly after that, the final report is published, which totally contradicts, what Henderson and his colleagues found yeah. at the scene in Duma. Now, again, in fairness to Braha, if you read the emails, even at the time he's asking that it be taken out of the repository, his contention is it that was not a legitimate channel for it to enter into in the first place. It hasn't been officially it, – it's coming at these guys out of the blue. I mean, remember, it's like a day or two later that they released the final report. Their final report asserting that that it, there likely was a chemical weapons attack, is ready to go. It's poised. And suddenly, this report shows up, uh, done by apparently, uh, you know, accredited engineers with a number of reasons to doubt. It's a pretty – well, what we have is the summary of the report. But they really seem to have touched all the bases. I can't vouch for whether it's right, but they definitely went through and considered a whole bunch of stuff. 
And, and so it's a major fly in the ointment for the OPCW. But I will say in defense of Braha, he, he says at the time, it should, a document of this sort that wasn't officially commissioned in whatever sense he thinks it should have been or wasn't, wasn't an official part at that point of what they considered to be the conduit of information leading the report. A document of that kind shouldn't have gone into it, get it out. It, it is a little weird that it's, he says, get out all traces that it was ever submitted. That's a little suspicious. But anyway, that's... Well, um, well to me, it's a cover-up. It, look, it's true that Henderson uh, proceeds on... I mean, he treads lightly. He knows that there are people inside there. After going through the experience that they had with the interim report, and he, and he says this in his testimony, he, he says that, you know, I knew that my findings were not going to be popular you know, or, you know, like he, or some language to that effect. So he's treading very lightly. He's trying to do his work without, uh, you know, drawing too much attention from the bosses above who he believes are predisposed to reaching uh, a, a conclusion that they've already drawn. Uh, and, uh, and so he does tread lightly, but the, but the point is during this period, he's still met with superiors. He, they know he's working on this report and he gets wind of the fact that they're rushing out all of a sudden this final report without taking his into a, into a consideration. I mean, that's what's, I mean, that's a key point here actually that I haven't mentioned yet was it, was that the reason Henderson deposits this inside the internal archive is because the, 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 the Duma team, the actual Duma team, the people who are there on the ground in Duma, they get wind very last minute that all of a, that a final report is about to come out. So at that point, that's why, that's what prompts Henderson to try to, uh, you know, uh, submit this to this internal archive because, because he wants his findings on the record because all because they're rushing to put out a report without his findings being included. Um, right. And, uh, maybe you should say, you know, Ted Postle, the, uh, expert on, you know, on, you know, missiles and, and, and stuff, the, uh, from MIT who was on your podcast, uh, has said, you know, the, the, that this, the report, that the OPCW basically didn't want to hear about the engineering report about the ballistics. He said it has all the, all the hallmarks of a very well and cap, you know, very capably done thing. He says these people really knew their stuff. And I believe he says that if you look at the engine, the, the comparable parts of the report that the OPCW did issue, it looks like they don't know what they're talking about. It he looks like it, it was done by amateurs. Yes. Yes. And he calls it fraud. Uh, yeah. He said that, that their findings don't uh, even match their own inputs, their yeah. own data, and that they don't seem to have a basic understanding of of physics. And you know, Bob, I, I you know, it, if you want to pursue this story further, I, I can't recommend Postal enough because he can lay out in in ways that I certainly can't. Yeah. Uh, all all the scientific reasons. I, I, I actually had a conversation because I may I may yet write about this. If I do, it'll it'll be in. Uh, the non-zero newsletter, which is a newsletter I put out and uh, where, which people can sign up for at nonzero.org three. Um, I did have a conversation with, it wasn't that, uh, it wasn't that long. It was a brief conversation, but um, he, uh, yeah, he, it was consistent with what I had heard on your podcast and he is a highly regarded expert. Now, um, as I think you said, uh, he has er- earlier expressed doubts about a, 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 another chemical weapons attack. Um, but I will also say that when the initial, were, there was a time when, when he wasn't a Duma skeptic, it's not like he's a universal chemical weapon skeptic. Yeah, the the intercept wrote a piece where he's saying, yeah, it sounds to me like it really happened. But then all these documents came out and he was able to look at them and, 
uh, he expressed doubts. So, right. um, you know, I guess we should, uh, I, I do want to talk at least uh, briefly about the reasons I'm agnostic about, about whether an attack actually took place. And I guess, I mean, there's a few of them. I mean, first of all, if you read, there's an intercept piece that um, that is, it seems to me pretty, uh, you know, doesn't have a particular axe to grind one way or the other. I think it throws out the possibility that, in terms of plausibility of attack, uh, I, I I agree with you that in one sense it just doesn't seem to make sense that the regime would launch a chemical weapons attack when the re- when everyone knew at this point because I remember this everyone knew that Duma was going to fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the 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 arg- an argument in this intercept piece or, or, or Bob you know just I'm, I'm sorry to parse language here or fall or be liberated from extremism oh, depending on yeah on, on yeah, yeah on I mean look you. no it, <laughs> anyway, it, yeah, it yeah. is worth um uh I mean it just seems to me a message of this whole thing is uh the first you know the old cliche the first casualty of war is truth yeah. be we should just all be skeptical of stuff that emerges from battlegrounds until, you know, we, we get, uh, you know, we have more, more sources and, and and the dust clears. And one thing that I think has been lost in a lot of the American reporting is that, um, you know, some of these groups that we and or our Arab allies armed were horrible people. I I also believe that Assad is a horrible person and the regime did, did horrible things, but, but it, it, it's not, it's just not a good and evil story. It's not. Let me say quickly on this. You know, my, my opinion really changed when I read a piece in the New York Times magazine by Robert F. Worth, veteran correspondent with the New York Times, formerly uh, their, their uh, chief correspondent in Beirut. And, you know, I had, to be honest with you, bought into a lot of the, the narratives we have gotten about freedom-loving rebels fighting this, you know, genocidal regime. And not what I later understood to be the reality of basically, you know, an authoritarian regime that's very ugly. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of Assad. Basically fighting to defend itself uh, from a proxy war that, had it been successful, would have subjected the country to uh, rule under groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. I mean, that was even acknowledged by John Kerry in a leaked video, in, in leaked audio, where he met with Syrian opposition activists, where he said that we were watching ISIS advance on Damascus and that if not for the Russian intervention, that ISIS would have likely taken Damascus. And Kerry seemed to be okay with that scenario because he felt as if the more ISIS advanced on Damascus, the more likely it would be that Assad would negotiate his ouster. So it was even acknowledged internally. And of course, there's that infamous document from the Defense Intelligence Agency. I believe it was written in 2012. This is the early stages of the Syrian proxy war, but the, the first protests against Assad happened in 2011. This Defense Intelligence Agency report from 2012 says that the dominant members of the opposition are Salafist forces like Al-Qaeda, and that if they succeed, they will set up a Salafist principality in large parts of uh, Syria, basically a caliphate, which is exactly what happened, where ISIS declared a Salafist caliphate, an ISIS caliphate, um, later on. And so... Robert F. Worth, in his piece uh, about Aleppo, he talks about the, the people who controlled Aleppo. Um, and we were, you know, back when 
Russia and Syria were recapturing Aleppo from the militants. That was described as this genocidal campaign where we were dislodging freedom fighters from Aleppo. When in reality, the reality was we were, uh, the Syrian uh, army and Russia were dislodging uh, foreign-backed uh, militants and many foreign militants from a city that they had occupied and that they did not have very much popular support except for a small number, as evidenced by the fact that when the first protests against Assad broke out, Aleppo didn't even take part. Aleppo basically stayed out of it. But so Robert F. Worth points that out. And he also talks about a place called Latakia, which is, uh, you know, in the uh, Alawite heartland, heartland of, of Syria. And he writes this. I just want to read it because, because this, this line was very resonant with me. And it speaks to what you're talking about in terms of who we supported in Syria. He says, quote, in Latakia, some people told me that their city might have been destroyed if not for the Russians. The city has long been one of Syria's safe zones well defended by the army and its militias. There are tent cities full of people who have fled other parts of the country, including thousands from Aleppo. But in the summer of 2015, the rebels were closing in on the Latakia city limits and mortars were falling downtown. If the rebels had captured the area where Alawites are the majority, a result would almost certainly have been sectarian mass murder. Many people in the region would have blamed the U.S., which armed some of the rebels operating in the area. So that's Robert F. Worth pointing out that the people who we were arming and supporting and cheering on in the Western media, had they been successful, would have committed sectarian mass murder. You know, And that, to me, it really uh, punctured the image that I had in my mind of what the, what the war was. And, uh, and I've since learned more from just from reading and talking to people who have been there and, and Syrians who, who, have, who have fled there or still have family there. And it, it's, it's a much different picture than what we've been presented with in the West. Okay. I have to again give you that microphone sorry, admonition. God, sorry, Bob. God <laughs> damn. The, I, uh, I was gonna I'm just gonna stick my hand here and hold yeah, yeah. I'm gonna grasp tie, it. Yeah. Could you tie your hands behind you? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um so uh yeah, so uh yeah, I mean I think my you know, my own view is uh in retrospect, there are a lot of dead people who would still be alive and a lot of refugees who wouldn't be refugees if if we and a number of Arab states and Turkey had not armed the rebels. I don't know if it was within our power to keep them from arming the rebels. I don't know. But um, in retrospect, and, and look, it, it's, it wouldn't be a great, you know, there, there would be, uh, it would have been, uh, the alternative is regrettable in itself because there would have been a brutal suppression of uh, uh, an insurrection that wasn't armed. And and that's horrible. I just think it would have been the, the less less horrible thing. That's my view. But I, I again, I, I don't want to... Um, yeah. You know, I, I hope that has not biased my assessment of of this whole OPCW thing. I hope we've made it clear what some of the evidence is. Just to, just to say a little more about why I remain agnostic as to whether it was a chemical weapons attack. Okay, so first of all, one thing the Intercept threw out is like maybe the regime didn't really uh, want to kill a bunch of people with chemical weapons. Maybe they just wanted to uh, to get people to flee it was it was it was uh they they wanted to get the rebels and 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 maybe other people to flee i don't know so they drop a couple of canisters as it happens one of them the nozzle breaks off and blah 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 that's that's one thing um but but i gotta say the main the main thing that that keeps me from feeling confident that an attack didn't happen because i was feeling that for a while i like read all these documents and i was thinking man this this just sounds super shady and but then I, I did see this video uh, and it's a video. Now, again, 
I don't know if we have ascertained for sure that it was taken inside the building that is location two. The doors were locked, and I don't think the inspectors actually got in there, but you got to remember, at the time they wanted in, and, and this is another thing I'll say, uh, that at the time they wanted to get in, it was uh, could, the area was controlled by the Syrian government. So um, it's, you know... Uh, My understanding on that, Bob, is that they got into the buildings, but they didn't get into certain apartments. I wonder oh, really? They, it, was it the gra- just the ground floor they didn't get into? I... I can't tell you the exact I, I, because, floor. because I think I think yeah. they got on the roof where the canister was sticking into the building. They got on the roof, and I believe they got into both buildings. Okay, because uh, I think what it said was the door that in the the outer door that in the video had been, um, I think, even off its hinges. Uh, the original video had been restored and they couldn't get in that. And so maybe it was just the ground. Well, I don't know. There was a stairway going all the way. Anyway, let me just describe the video. Okay. So we can link to it, but I really don't recommend watching it. It, it, This is like a serious trigger warning. I mean, it's just kind of revolting because uh, the video starts what on what seems to be in the ground floor. This is said to have been done, you know, right after the uh, the attacks uh, and some kinds of attacks definitely took place. Again, if only intensive bombing. Um, there are bodies everywhere, kind of. Um, they seem to be real bodies. Not there aren't actors good enough to act, you know, to to act dead in the way these, you know, and these aren't dolls. These are bodies. They um, they a number of them have these secretions from their nose or mouth that if they weren't authentic, you know, uh, some somebody uh, must have gone, you know, spraying stuff on them to make them look authentic. At least four or five people have the, the same kind of stuff, like nasal uh, kind of uh, stuff mm-hmm. I, I needn't get into further. The, the video walks up in a continuous shot to the uh, top floor through the staircase, and there's kind of people – um, you know, bodies all around. And then it look there's a, it, it goes up and, and, and looks at the, shows us the ceiling and through the ceiling, there is protruding something that allegedly is the nose of that, um, of, of the, of the canister that we've definitely seen from roof level. We've seen, we have plenty of pictures of it from, uh, from the outside, from people who are on that roof. Now, A critical fact is, can we or can we not confirm that this video was taken in that building? Of course. Um, I assume we're confident of the date. I think it was put on the Internet uh, pretty quickly. Uh, And as I said, the body by the time the inspectors were gone, the bodies were gone. uh, They would have been buried by then. Um, But if indeed we can we can confirm and I don't know we can that that's the same building. My question is like. How would you stage that now in, you know, what you, you would bring all these bodies in without there being any witnesses to your having brought them in or they would have been, you know, there's no signs that they died from bombs. They, 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 they um, so there's none of that, that kind of carnage. Um, so if that's really the building where the thing was found pointing into the building, um, if we confirm that, 
I would have trouble imagining. I mean, in principle, the rebels could do the killing themselves, right? That could happen. They could actually launch a chemical weapons attack. As I said, uh, chlorine's not hard to get. Apparently, these canisters aren't hard to get. That could happen. But, geez, I, I, I have trouble. I just don't have a simple hypothesis as to how if if these people weren't killed by that canister how how i i don't know i it's it's well okay yeah listen i i do assume that the video actually is from is from the location is from location two i i think i I haven't seen anything that would question whether or not it's actually at that location so i do think that those bodies were actually there i will point to you again i read the quote earlier from the first interim report that one that was not ultimately released but the but the findings were that those symptoms including the frothing uh, were not consistent with exposure to to a chlorine and and all that was taken out i mean there's an extensive passage mm-hmm. i could read it again but it's you know no, that, uh, that's true but what i would say is that um i mean relatedly there there is uh they also say that where the bodies are you know when a chlorine when chlorine attacks happen people um head for windows and doors and yeah. there's then and, and and it doesn't seem that many of these people did that just judging by where the bodies are that's one thing the duma team said on the other hand i think maybe i got this from the intercept piece i don't know the nozzle was actually broken off the chlorine wasn't being released at a normal rate i i mean if there was chlorine in this cylinder it might have come out much more rapidly than it's possible for it to come out through a controlled nozzle in okay, which well, sure. case yeah, the the, the symptoms might be different yeah. and the people just might not be able to get out of the building. Although according to uh, reports, the, the witnesses, maybe these are witnesses in Turkey, but um, there were supposedly bodies, a few bodies outside the door. Some people had almost made it out or something, but, but it's certainly true. And, and uh, th- that I don't think there's anybody who says they were in the building and, and, and they got out and lived. Um, Anyway, That's exactly right. Well, listen, what what Postal said originally, and, and he's quoted in this intercept piece, and this intercept piece is written before Ian Henderson's report. Is yeah, before these May. documents come out. Yeah. What Postal says is that it's possible that if if victims believe that running to the roof might save them because they, maybe they thought that the chlorine was coming from below and maybe they had been told to run to the roof to, for, for, like for air up above, that it's possible that in the courts of them running up the stairs, that that's when all this would have happened. But, you know, Postal, after reading Henderson's report, says that basically the physics of that is impossible. That the, the fact, the, the the notion that the cylinder poured gas through the roof, for the various reasons, uh, including the size of the crater, the the impact on the cylinder itself, and also the concrete, just doesn't point to the cylinder being dropped from the sky. And the the interim report, the um, the the or at least the censored interim report. Uh, they say on this, and I, I think I quoted this earlier, but I'm just going to say it again. The large number of decedents in the one location, allegedly 40, 40 to 45 victims, most of whom were seen in videos and photos strewn on the floor of the apartments away from open windows and within a few meters of an escape to unpoisoned or less toxic air is at odds with intoxication by chlorine-based choking or blood agents, even at high concentrations. Okay. So that was the that was the finding that was omitted from the interim report and the final yeah. report. Um, and so, in, in terms of how they were killed, look, I you know, I I don't want to speculate except to say that I would not put it past 
these extremist militants who control Duma to do to do stuff like this. That we've known, we've all seen the videos of these people committing horrible atrocities. I believe even in Duma, that that's a place where uh, pe- uh, uh, people who may, might have, maybe have a different sect who are not Sunni were taken was- around in cages. And uh, I mean, these are these are really. Extreme. I was wondering what the kind of uh, sectarian and ethnic composition of Duma was. In other words, would there have been uh, likely just extreme tension between the the uh, jihadists, even beyond the tension that the, you might have just because you're not enthusiastic about you know jihadists occupying your neighborhood or whatever. I mean, I, I wondered if there was any kind of because. Uh, just to, I mean, we're getting super speculative here, but, but, but to do something that gruesome, uh, it just almost seems like you would have had to long ago totally dehumanize these people, right? Like you'd have to think of them as just like everybody in this neighborhood is your enemy or something. I mean, I, I. These are, these are Saudi backed, Saudi backed, Saudi funded extremists. Yeah, they're definitely not randomly selected people. You're right. Who have committed the worst of atrocities that are now well documented. Uh, We've seen some of the execution videos. Um, We've seen the video, you know, even the footage coming out of Idlib right now, which is being liberated, the signs that are being put up there, people wearing uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda badges. So these are not, you know, anarchist freedom fighters. You know, uh, democracy lovers. These are these are brutal people, and and that's, yeah, but that, geez, that's, so huh. I, I wouldn't. I, you know, you know, and, this and build, there's a lot of kids in this building. I mean, th- there are a lot of kids, and look, look, the um, the uh, the, and the thing is, there there were people in towns like Duma who welcomed the rebels initially. I mean, Max Blumenthal, who recently went to Damascus, told me this that you know, people he talked to, there are a lot of Sunni towns where uh, initially. Uh, these rebels were welcomed because, you know, they, they were seen as, as, as heroes to, to many people who despised the Assad government, you know, and, and I, I get why initially it is an authoritarian government. You're being promised liberation and you have uh, the U.S., you know, cheering you on and saying, we're going to help free you. So for many people, it was a hopeful time to get rid of a authoritarian family dynasty that had ruled the country for decades. And so some of these groups were welcomed. Until their true nature was shown, which is that these are uh, fanatical Salafists who want to impose, uh, you know, a strict Islamic uh, uh, a code on these towns, you know, making people wear hijab uh, and killing religious minorities, anybody who basically is not uh, Sunni. So it's, it's, it's at that point you have a lot of these towns turning on the people that were occupying them. And it doesn't put it – I don't put it past them to have committed something so – Awful as staging, as 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 staging this attack, including by uh, killing the victims themselves or taking victims of a of a different attack, whether it was a, a conventional bombing and, and placing their bodies there. Yeah, I I, I maybe I'm not. I, I almost just can't bring myself to believe it because it's so sickening. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, uh, not that any chemical weapons attack isn't sickening. It's just that. Uh, I think it's easier uh, for a person to drop a cylinder from a helicopter and, sure. and not think too much about what happens afterwards than it is to, you know, uh, do whatever it would have been uh, taken to, to stage this thing. Um, yeah. The um, so uh, I guess I think we've lo- I, I cannot overemphasize that the question of whether the chemical weapons attack happened, whether a it happened and b if it happened, it was actually done by rebels. Um, how independent for a, how agnostic I am, I just don't know. And B how 
separate that is from the fact that there is pretty strong evidence that the world's chemical weapons watchdog, which has tremendous potential as an instrument of global governance uh, and could in principle be, you know, uh, uh, a, a, a model for future uh, things in, in other realms of for future institutions and in other realms of, of weapons of mass destruction. God knows biological weapons. We need to get on that case soon. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take probably some degree of international governance. And we need to have institutions of integrity, uh, you know, um, in doing that stuff. And, and so I just cannot overemphasize how a important, I think it is, uh, that there's evidence that this institution has been corrupted. Maybe whether or not it turns to be the case, there's enough evidence of that, that media should be all over it. And B, how separate that is from the question of whether the attack actually happened. Whatever the case is there, there is cause for real concern that a very important institution has been corrupted and that the Trump administration has was involved in the corruption, although that evidence is not as strong as the evidence of corruption per se. Um, and that's, I don't know what, I don't know that I have anything else to say. Do you? Well, just, I, I totally agree with everything. I, I think the important thing is, is to have these whistleblowers heard. And that's what they want. If you, Ian Henderson in his testimony to the UN, he says, he even allows, he says, you know, I could be wrong, you know, uh, but the scientific, scientific inquiry requires that all the available evidence is heard and that the alternative hypotheses, whatever they are, in this case, are considered. And he wants, and that's, and that's what he's asking for. He's basically asking for the opportunity uh, for the evidence to be heard that was suppressed when the OPCW came up with these two reports. That's what he wants. And it, why would anybody oppose that, you know, to, to convene actual experts? Because, by the way, we don't even know who the actual experts were who the OPCW relied on after it kicked out its own. Mm-hmm. So you you have, you know, its own experts being sidelined and then other people are brought in. We actually don't know who they are. I suspect, you know, that who some of them are who, you know, were relied on. Um, and they include Bellingcat, this group that receives heavy funding from the U.S. government and has been. Does it get know, U.S. government funding? It gets you. It gets funding from the National Endowment for Democracy, mm-hmm. which is the U.S. government. And, and the NAD was founded uh to basically, according to its founder, you know, carry on the activities of the CIA, uh, just in a, just in a different way through civil society means. And so I, you know, I can't prove that Bellingcat was used for this, but I have my strong suspicions. And regardless of whether Bellingcat was used or not, just the fact is the actual experts, uh, and the actual people who were on the ground in Duma, they were excluded and their evidence was kept out as well. And that, should be heard. And just the principle of defending people who speak out uh, and who raise serious questions such as this, it's really important. I mean, the only way to protect whistleblowers is through public support, uh, because otherwise uh, higher ups are uh, granted impunity and emboldened to basically fix findings and fix the facts to their liking. And we know now that this was done with some U.S. involvement, although we don't know the full details. We know that the U.S. went to the OPCW and told them what to do. And that is concerning in itself. And so when we don't speak about this, when the media is totally silent on their story, 
I mean, it highlights a huge amount of hypocrisy because for all the championing of whistleblowers that has happened recently around impeachment, and it actually also puts these people in danger because they're risking their professional lives to speak out. And they're actually also, I think, risking their own safety. I mean, we know that John Bolton threatened Jose Bustani and his family with physical harm when he was yeah. getting in the way of kind of implicitly, uh, kind of like we know where your family lives, kind of stuff. Creepy. That's a bold, cre- that's yeah. what Bolton told Bustani. And, I know. and we, and, and, we and this guy was head of the OPCW. That's right. And so these people who are even lower level of the OPCW, these two inspectors, uh, are, we're putting them at risk if we're ignoring, uh, their findings and uh, ignoring the ordeal that they went through, struggling to try to get them out to the public, uh, from superiors who I think were the ones who engaged in subterfuge and, uh, and, and egregious tactics. Uh, and are now trying to dismiss them as rogue employees. So I, I think that we owe it to them and to future whistleblowers to champion them and at least to fight for their for their science to be heard. Well, the other thing is uh, an institution with the resources to say the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, or any of the big broadcast news organizations, they actually can get to the bottom of this. They yeah. They can get colleagues of these guys to speak to them, if anonymously. And yeah. learn a lot more than we know. I mean, yeah. y- you know, you, we already have enough people speaking out that if you had like one more person supporting what they say, and you can imagine why they don't want to speak up publicly and say it, but if you had any degree of co- corroboration of what they're saying, to, to my mind, that would pretty much seal the deal. That, uh, and the, um, and, and so it's just such a waste when these, you know, great, and, and these, these, you know, they do great work all of these all of these journalistic institutions when they put their mind to it uh but for them to to just be ignoring this is um uh is sad and and a little bizarre well listen speaking of sad this is where i have to call out not just the corporate outlets like the new york times but i also have to call out progressive and adversarial outlets including the intercept which we've already talked about the intercept did that story uh with you know that that story was back in february 2018 i believe a few months before Henderson's report came out, yeah. which which advanced the story that there was a chemical attack by Syria. Since yeah, then, I mean it, it didn't since, profess a great degree of confidence. I will say it, it was a it didn't it, it, you know to me it, it was a disin, to me it was a disingenuous way of advancing the official story while appearing to be even handed. But anyway, but whatever we can disagree on that. The point is, since the Henderson report has come out, and since yeah. multiple batches of leaks by WikiLeaks have come out. In all the source material that we've been talking about, all these internal emails, the, the redacted original interim report written by the actual people on the ground, Intercept has done zero stories about this. Uh, Robert Mackey was one of their columnists who did a bunch of columns attacking Russia for casting doubt on the official narrative. He's been totally silent. And that to me is, is just as a derelict as the New York Times, because the Intercept has ample resources to cover this too. And to he did, and he did some work on this before the documents came out. He's at least featured in one of their videos. Mackey is. Sure, he is. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised. And and the same, you know, I I spent ten years at Democracy Now, uh, which which is where I learned to do journalism. And to me, it's to me, Deanne has been the model for adversarial progressive journalism. And be, they've unfortunately bought into the. Western narrative on Syria to the point where they now completely exclude critics of the proxy war. And when it comes to this Duma story, their only contribution to it has was been to bring on Brian Whitaker, who is also a promoter of the official story and who constantly attacks people who 
try to present a dissenting narrative. So they brought on Brian Whitaker to basically downplay Ian Henderson's leaked, uh, leaked report. And since then, they've done nothing about it. They've mm-hmm. ignored the multiple emails that have, like the multiple leaks from WikiLeaks that have come out since. So it's, it's not just our mainstream media here. And I'm not doing this to shame anybody or to claim that they lack integrity or have bad motives. I'm just saying is that when it comes to Syria, unfortunately, even adversarial progressive outlets have been co-opted and enrolled into advancing a very faulty narrative and to the point where they're not even now willing to give uh, a hearing, a fair hearing to brave dissenters whose findings contradict everything that they've been promoting. Well, uh, the reticence of some of them is understandable, just in the sense that it's like this is a rare opportunity to be accused of both being a conspiracy theorist and an Assad sympathizer, you know, and and, and that's the environment we're in. I, look, I agree. It shouldn't be we're not in, in general. School. You should we're, be able to a- air questions yeah. without being stigmatized for raising them. That's just a, a, a general principle, I think. Um, we're, we're not in high school. That's what I want no, to say. We're, I, we're not in high school. We're, we're all professionals who work in media. Mm-hmm. And it's our job, especially outlets that champion uh, how adversarial they are and skeptical they are of government claims. Well, here's mm-hmm. the most perfect story possible. Whistleblower is alleging a cover-up at the OPCW under Trump administration pressure. And the fact that you can either be whitewashing it or just silent on it, to me, is just as derelict as a New York Times silence on it as well. Yeah. I, I want to say one more thing that just popped into my mind about uh, – you know, why, why I'd like the, the, a, a big media institution to dig into this is because so we mainly have like two whistleblowers. It's conceivable. I don't know these guys that they had an axe to grind and that maybe everyone on their team. I don't think I think there's evidence that this isn't the case, but still that maybe number of people on the Duma team are going. Yeah, these guys are a little extreme. They're a little whacked out. That's conceivable. I think there's a very low probability of it. But again, the the Times, the Post, the Journal, they could get to the bottom. They could find out whether that is the case. And I can tell you, Bob, according, according to Henderson, a memo that he wrote complaining after the uh, final report was released. By the way, after the interim report was released, Alex, he was driven out. He was basically forced to leave because he was the one who drafted the uh, interim report that got censored. And he raised complaints that he was forced to leave. Henderson somehow stuck around. Uh, and, but so after the final report gets released, Henderson writes a letter of protest to directly to the director general of the OPCW, trying to raise his concerns with the final report because he feels he has no recourse left. And he says that there are about 20 colleagues who agree with him. So hmm. look, maybe yeah, he's lying or maybe he's telling, if he's telling the truth, then it certainly was not just, um, uh, him and the other whistleblower, Alex. And by the way, there is a third, I mentioned this earlier, this third, uh, a former senior OPCW official who yeah. has communicated with the working group, this group of British academics, saying that the reason that they were not speaking out is because they just feared for their own safety. I didn't realize Alex was pushed out before uh, that early because I yeah. had assumed that, you know, the email complaining about the way Henderson was frog marched out of the building. Yeah. I had assumed that was from Alex, but it sounds like it's written from someone uh, internally. Anyway, we're getting deep into the weeds. That could be from Alex or it could be from someone else. We don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, I, I think we've uh, gone on as long as anybody wants. Um, <laughs> More than that. <laughs> yeah. So let's briefly uh, remind us where we can find your stuff. Again, uh, Pushback is the podcast where there's uh, interviews with, with Postal, 
with Jonathan Steele, the journalist who interviewed, who, who, who heard testimony from Alex, which most people haven't done. Uh, you and Larry Wilkerson get into it a little, but he's not like, you know, he, he he's not privy to uh, inside in, info. Um, no, but he was there under Bush when, mm-hmm. when, when the Bush administration kicked out Jose Bustani. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wil- uh, Wilkerson certainly agrees with those, including Jose Bustani and Noam Chomsky uh, and Richard Falk, the, uh, who has served in various UN roles and is a professor of international law in calling for these whistleblowers to be able to have their, and by the way, Ian Henderson doesn't even want to be called a whistleblower. He, he's just a, a, a scientist. Well, that's the one thing he agrees with the OPCW on. They don't <laughs> yeah, want to exactly. call him that yeah. either. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so all these eminent voices calling for, uh, for these whistleblowers to be heard. And, you know, yeah. So you can, so I, I've covered this extensively at pushback. It's pushbackshow.com. It's hosted at the gray zone. Uh, Max Blumenthal, uh, is our editor. And we, you know, the, uh, the most recent report I did is, uh, an article, a long article, which is based on the, a leak that we got, which is Henderson's full, uh, full written testimony to the UN Security oh, Council. You, so you're the reason that's public now that that's available now. That was us. It, yeah. it was leaked to you. Yeah. Now look, Good. you know, like picking up on your earlier point, in a sane world, this would have been leaked to the Washington Post and New York Times, but it speaks to the fact that how much you know uh, mainstream outlets have coalesced around. The dominant narrative, even one that challenges the Trump administration, because we're all supposed to be, you know. I know uh, you'd think, right? Yeah, you'd think we yeah. could get the resistance on board for this, right? You, you, you think so? It's a perfect story, but no. But because you know, there's been such bipartisan consensus around promoting the Syrian proxy war, it's meant that you know it's dissenting small outlets like the Gray Zone that get huge leaks like this, and you know, it's I'm I'm happy to do it, but yeah, it it does belong. No, and very few people on Twitter. Max Abrams is an exception. Uh, he's been on my show once, but he's been saying it sounds like there's something there. And, you know, he's an actual academic uh, international relations guy. I don't know if you know. Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's among the, the, the academics in the U.S. of a very small number who have been warning for many years that we are arming uh, fanatical jihadists mm. in Syria who are who are destroying the country. And he's been, mm. you know, I don't agree with him on pretty much on many other key issues, especially Israel Palestine. But on this one he's been he's been honest and and sober and uh and not and that the, he's not on Israel Palestine. You're just saying you disagree there. Yes, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh the um so where uh my dog my dogs even are, are telling me to quit this. I'm hearing they're barking. So maybe we should, so where can people um uh, where where do you tweet? What's your Twitter handle? Uh Aaron J Mate. That's M a A T E or M A T E M A T E. Yeah. Is there some the kind of place? Yeah. Go the, ahead. The main place to go to is, is the gray zone.com where okay. you have a pushback show there. And also the articles that I've done on this and the articles of my colleague, Ben Norton, who's also has been covering this. We are all, are all, we are all over this story because it's so oh, important. Yes. yes, you are to your credit. And, uh, and I tweet at Robert Ryder, W R I G H T E R put out the non-zero newsletter uh nonzero.org and there may by the time this airs i may have written something about i don't know but it certainly won't include anything that's not in this conversation so if you've heard the conversation i'm not sure you need to go there um in any event uh thanks aaron and we'll see uh you know how this you you think eventually this will uh you know reach mainstream media but maybe not we'll see but anyway thanks thanks for your work thanks for having me bob